We are now going over to questions to the Prime Minister. I will be running the questions for 45 minutes. I will call the first Secretary of State to answer the engagement questions. And can I welcome to the dispatch box? Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. I've been asked to respond on behalf of my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, and I'm pleased to tell the House that he uh, is making a good recovery and is in good spirits. Mr Speaker, the coronavirus pandemic presents us with one of the biggest challenges we have faced as a country in decades. Our message to the British public is clear. Please stay at home to protect the NHS and to save lives. And as a government, we continue to take the right measures at the right time guided by the science and the medical experts. I want to pay tribute to the enormous contribution that our NHS and other frontline workers have made to tackling this virus. We owe them an enormous debt of gratitude and we will continue to do whatever it takes to support them. Our aim has always been, Mr Speaker, to protect the NHS and to save lives and with the public's incredible support we are doing that by flattening the peak of this virus. Thank you, Mr Speaker, for all of your efforts to ensure Parliament can meet and apply the scrutiny to government that we expect and we embrace. This House meets in challenging times. Together we can and we will defeat this virus. Can I echo the sentiments about the Prime Minister? We do wish him a speedy recovery. And it does allow me to tell the House that the Honourable Member for Rother Valley has withdrawn, so I will be calling Sir Keir Starmer and welcoming him in his first outing to this dispatch box. Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And can I thank you, the House authorities and the staff, for allowing us to meet in this way today, because it's important that we have this scrutiny. Can I also send all of our best wishes through the First Secretary to the Prime Minister for a full and speedy recovery? And I'm sure I speak for the whole House in sending our best wishes to all of those affected by coronavirus and condolences of the whole House to all of those that have lost loved ones. And again, for the whole House, our deepest thanks to those on the front line risking their lives to keep us safe and our country going. Mr Speaker, I promised that we would give constructive opposition with the courage to support the government where that's the right thing to do. And we all want and need the government to succeed in defeating coronavirus. But we also have to have the courage to challenge where we think the government is getting it wrong. And in that spirit, I want to start with testing. Testing is obviously crucial at every stage of the pandemic. But we have been very slow, and we're way behind other European countries. Now, the Health Secretary made a very important commitment to 100,000 tests a day by the end of April. But yesterday, the figure for actual tests was 18,000 a day, and that was down from Monday, which was 19,000 tests a day. So we're way behind the curve, and the end of the month is a week tomorrow. So what does the First Secretary expect to happen in the next eight days to get us from 18,000 tests a day to 100,000 tests a day? First Secretary. 
the right honourable gentleman, uh, congratulate him on his success being elected leader of the Labour Party. I will certainly pass on his best wishes to the Prime Minister. I know he would want to be here in person. Uh, and can I join him in paying tribute to all of our NHS and other frontline workers? Uh, he rightly raises the crucial issue of testing, which is going to be an incredibly important po uh, part of our strategy from tra for transitioning from the current uh, social distancing measures. But I do have to just correct him. Uh, our capacity for tests is now at 40,000 per day. So I think that is an incredibly important milestone. And of course, he's right to say that in the final week, that will require a big uh, increase. But of course, with a project like this, it does require an exponential increase in the final days and the final week uh, of the programme. I can reassure him that we are working with a range of commercial partners to boost the testing, to get to that 100,000 tests per day. Two of our super labs in Milton Keynes and Aldley Park are now fully functional uh, and Glasgow will be open later this week. Keir Starmer. Uh, thank you very much to the First Secretary and thank you for his kind comments. Uh, I didn't need correcting because I gave the, uh, the figure for the actual tests a day. The First Secretary says that there's capacity for 40,000 tests a day and I think it's really important that we fully understand what the First Secretary just said. Because that means that the day before yesterday, 40,000 tests could have been carried out, but only 18,000 tests were actually carried out. Yep. Now, all week, I've heard from the front line, from care workers, who are frankly desperate for tests for their residents and for themselves, desperate. Yeah. They would expect every test to be used every day for those that need them. So there's clearly a problem. Why isn't the government using all the tests available every day? Yes. Well, Secretary. Thank the right honourable gentleman, and it's important to pay tribute because there are two elements of this. Getting the capacity up is part of it, uh, and we're making good progress, and I, and I hope that he has conceded that point. The issue of then increasing the demand is something that we've got control over. Of course, we are uh, making sure that the eligibility is broadened. Our focus, as I, I think he would agree, should be on frontline NHS staff, broadened out to care workers and other uh, key, uh, uh, key workers, and then done in a, uh, in, in a way which the system can manage. We are confident that based on our test capacity that we will be able to deliver that. And we have, uh, in relation to uh, the, the capacity itself and getting to the 100,000 target, a range of deals with Thermo Fisher, with Randox. Uh, we've got the AstraZeneca, GSK and Cambridge University working together to set up a new lab that we will deliver. And those tests will be crucial, not just in terms of controlling the virus, but allowing the country to move to the next phase. I'm grateful and, and, and I welcome the fact that capacity has gone up, um, but um, it's not now a question of driving up demand. Demand is there. Last week the Health Secretary said that every care worker who needed a test would get one. But the reality on the ground is very different and there are very few tests indeed. And the position is this, if a care worker has symptoms of coronavirus or a family member has symptoms, he or she has to self-isolate quite rightly. To get a necessary test, they're then instructed to travel to a testing centre, which is often very many miles away. So an example is social care workers in Leicester are being told to go to the outskirts of Nottingham 
a 45-minute drive in order to get tested. There are lots of examples uh, across, the exa uh, across the country of this. Now, there's an obvious problem with that system. Not all care workers will have access to a car. Because they've got symptoms or family members have got symptoms, they obviously can't use public transport. So it's little wonder we're seeing these pictures of half-empty testing centres. So it doesn't look like that's a good plan. And it's not about driving up demand, it's about tests where they're needed. So what reassurance can the First Secretary give to care workers on the front line that things will improve for them and fast? Secretary. Honourable gentlemen, it is certainly about capacity. We've addressed, uh, I've addressed that in my earlier answers and also explained how we'll bridge the 100,000. It is about uh, demand. We need to encourage those who are able to take the test to come forward. But he is right. He is right to say it's also about distribution and some of the logistical and, frankly, transport challenges that people, particularly some of those that he described, uh, will have in terms of getting to the test. So we're working with the local resilience forums to make sure that we can distribute the tests uh, as effectively as possible. We've got mobile labs to go to some of those areas uh, for the hard to reach. We'll be using uh, the army who have made, along with the other key workers, an incredible contribution to support that effort. Um, but I just come back to the key point. I do think it's important to have a target and to drive towards a target. We are making good progress, we are confident we will meet it and I think that he should join with me as we engage in this national effort of saying to Labour's Welsh Health Minister Vaughan Gethin that who has abandoned the Welsh target in Labour-run Wales of 5,000 that actually we need to work together in all four corners of the United Kingdom to make sure that we reach that national effort. It is about, it is about capacity, it is about distribution. We'll only be able to manage to hit that target if all of us come together to deliver on it. Mr Speaker, I do recognise how hard um, people are working to try to drive the number of tests up, but there is a significant gap and there's only eight days left. Mr Speaker, on Monday, Manjit Singh Riyadh, an A&E consultant at the Royal Derby Hospital, sadly died of coronavirus. He, I think, was the first Sikh A&E consultant respected widely across the country and instrumental in building up Derbyshire's emergency services. He sadly just one of the many frontline health and social care workers to have died from coronavirus during this crisis. So can the, F the First Secretary tell us how many NHS workers have now died from coronavirus and how many social care workers have now died from coronavirus? First Secretary. Well, can I just say to him that I entirely agree with the broader point he makes, which is that as our key workers, whether they're in the NHS, whether they're in social care, um, who are fighting for us, tending for the most vulnerable in our society, need the full support. That's why it's so important uh, that we ramp up the testing, ramp up uh, the PPE deliveries. On the latest figures, my understanding is that uh, 69 uh, people have died within the NHS of coronavirus. Uh, I don't have the precise figure for care homes. They're more difficult to establish in relation to care home workers as opposed to care home residents. But I think we can all agree in this House, every one of those is a tragedy, and that can only uh, double down our efforts to tackle this uh, uh, virus and do everything we can to support those amazing workers in the NHS who are de delivering so much to take the battle to the coronavirus. Kirstama. I thank the First Secretary for giving us the figure in relation to NHS 
uh, workers, and of course a tragic case, each and every one of them. I'm disappointed we don't have a number for social care workers, and I've put the First Secretary on notice that I'll ask the same question again next week, uh, and hopefully we can have a better answer. Mr Speaker, let me turn to protective equipment. Uh, clearly this is crucial to those at risk on the front line, who are risking their lives to save ours, and the least they deserve is the right protective equipment. And we've all heard countless examples of frontline workers not getting the equipment they need. This is an example from a Unison care worker just last weekend, uh, and I quote, I work in a nursing home. I'm terrified. I don't know if residents have a virus. We're wearing homemade masks. This is horrible, and I'm very scared. And that word scared, I think, is one we've all heard many, many times in the last two or three weeks. A survey by the Royal College of Nursing found that half of nursing staff felt under pressure to work without the levels of protective equipment set out in official guidance. This has been a stress test of our resilience, and the government plan is clearly not working. So can I ask the First Secretary to tell frontline workers at risk, when will they finally get the equipment they need to keep them safe? Secretary. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, can I first say that uh, in relation to all of those frontline staff who have passed away as they battle coronavirus and, and work so hard to protect other people who are suffering, uh, our hearts go out to them. Uh, and he's absolutely right that we must do everything we can to protect them. I know we recently had a consultant who passed away at Kingston Hospital, where I've been treated, where both my boys were, uh, were, were born and delivered. Uh, how important that is, how uh, uh, personal it is to so many of us. And we absolutely agree on the need to protect them. Um, he, he, he will know that getting the PPE to where it needs to be is a massive international challenge that every country faces globally from China uh, to Germany. Uh, and we've done a huge uh, effort to provide, for example, the ventilators which have bolstered the NHS during this incredibly difficult time. If we hadn't been able to do that, the NHS would not have been able to cope. Uh, since the start of the outbreak, we've delivered one billion items of personal protective equipment and tens of millions have been distributed uh, via the devolved administrations. We recognise, though, that we've got to strive even harder in this uh, incredibly difficult and competitive international environment to source the equipment. That's why we brought in my noble friend Lord Dayton, formerly Chief Executive of the London 2012 Olympics, who's been appointed to lead on our domestic efforts. Um, we've delivered uh, 34 million items of PPE across 38 local resilience forums. Uh, we've established the hotlines, the Royal Mail uh, procedures, a new pilot website to make sure not only have we got the amount of PPE that we need to, but also that it can get to the most vulnerable and those on the front line who need it most. Can I join the sentiments of the First Secretary in relation to all of those working on the front line um, and also pay tribute to all of those that have ramped up the capacity of the NHS. It's been incredible to see what's happened in the last few weeks and I know that's been a huge effort. I do understand the challenge uh, of getting the right equipment to the right place uh, every time, but as the First Secretary knows, there's a significant gap between promise and delivery. Uh, and over the last few days, it's emerged that British manufacturers have got in touch with many members of the opposition, probably members across the House, saying that they offered to help produce protective equipment, but they didn't get a response from the government. Now, I do understand due diligence and that all the offers couldn't be taken up, but some of those who offered to help are now supplying to other countries. So they clearly could have supplied in this country. 
and something's going wrong. And there's a pattern emerging here. We were slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on protective equipment, and now slow to take up these offers from British firms. The Prime Minister has said this is a national effort, and he's right about that. So in that spirit, can I ask the, Prime, uh, the, the First Minister to commit to working with the opposition to identify and take up these offers from British manufacturers uh, for uh, protective equipment just as soon as possible? First Secretary. Well, I thank the honourable gentleman, although I, I don't accept his premise that we've been slow. We have been guided by the scientific advice, the chief scientific advice, the chief medical officer uh, at every step along this way. If he thinks he knows better than they do, uh, in, with the benefit of hindsight, then that's his decision. But that is not the way we've proceeded, and it's not the way we will in the future. He's mentioned offers from British uh, businesses. Um, and it's not quite right to say that they must have been acceptable for UK standards just because they're supplying different needs in different countries abroad. But what I can reassure him, I can reassure him on this, 8,000 businesses have offered PPE in response to the government's call, uh, and every business receives a response. 3,000 of those 8,000 are followed up where they've got either the specification or the a volume that makes it a, a, a sensible thing for the NHS to do. And he, he did make, I think, a sensible point about um, specifications and health standards. He will know from the reporting that in other countries uh, that have uh, distributed PPE without those high standards, they've de been distributed with faults or flaws, they've had to be recalled, and health workers in those countries have had to go in isolation. So I appreciate that he wants to put pressure and scrutinise the government, but I think, and I hope you'll understand, the need to take the right decisions and to scrutinise very carefully the precious PPE that we're putting on the front line to protect our key workers. David Mundell, we've been unable to connect, so I now go to Ian Blackford with his first of his two questions. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues, we are reminded every day of the terrible toll that it takes on our society, but also of the heroic efforts by our frontline workers, and I would like to take the opportunity to put on record our gratitude for everything that they do. Mr Speaker, it is now 34 days since the Chancellor first announced a package of economic support. At the time, heralded as a package of support for all businesses and workers during this health emergency. And yet, 34 days on, thousands of businesses and individuals have found themselves with no income, with no support and no end in sight, and all because of arbitrary cut-off dates and bureaucratic barriers imposed by this UK government. People are being left behind. Today, the Scottish National Party is leading a cross-party call for a universal basic income to finally protect everyone. It will put cash in people's pockets and it will help ensure a strong economic recovery and a fairer society. Can the First Secretary of State give us a straight answer today? Does he support this proposal or does he reject it? First Secretary. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, first of all, can I pay tribute along with uh, the Honourable Gentleman to the key workers that have served every uh, one of our four nations? Can I also say, in relation to Scotland, uh, that we uh, recognise the UK-wide effort to tackle coronavirus, the RAF helicopters helping Scottish patients get treatment, uh, the Regiment of Scotland setting up test centres in Glasgow, and the 11 million items of personal protective equipment that have been delivered from central UK government stocks to make sure that as one United Kingdom we defeat the coronavirus. I don't agree with his point on the universal income. The Chancellor has, I think, quite rightly adopted and announced a series of measures, second to none in the world, to support workers through the job retention scheme, to make sure that for those that don't qualify, other support like an increase in universal credit and working tax credit credits are able to, 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 to deal with the challenge, and I think we need to have a very focused approach, providing the resources that we need to those that need it most. And a universal income without uh, 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 being based on need wouldn't provide that. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Of course, the simple fact is that many people are being left behind. Many people are not getting an income just now. A universal basic income is the right economic policy at the right time. Mr Speaker, its time has come. Over 100 members of Parliament from seven political parties, parties from across the four nations and regions of the United Kingdom, have come together to support the solution. Polling shows that 84% of the public now support this. A universal basic income is a solution that will provide support for anybody and, crucially, it will leave no one behind. First Secretary of State, it's a solution that deserves more than the answer that we got just now. The government should think again, because we shouldn't be left in the situation that either the self-employed or those that are seasonal workers and others don't get the support they deserve. Will the government think on this again and do the right thing, make sure that no one is left behind, yes or no? First Secretary. I thank the right honourable gentleman, but um, as I made clear in my earlier answer, we want to make sure we provide the support to those who need it most. A universal approach, uniform without uh, reference to need uh, or income, or the most vulnerable in our society is not the way uh, I respectfully suggest to achieve it. Our plan is one of the most extensive in the world. It makes sure that workers receive 80% of their salary, up to £2,500. We've already extended this to June. We have made other forms of support available for those that don't qualify. He's talked about the self-employed um, and uh, or others uh, who, who may not fall within the criteria of the scheme. Uh, I've made clear the uh, increases to universal credit and the working tax credit basic rate, the mortgage holidays, the energy bill deferrals. That's the way we have a focused approach that is targeting the resources at those who need them most and allows our economy as a whole to pull through this coronavirus. We're now going over to Peter Bone. Mr Speaker, at this time of national emergency, many people are, are being forced to use their bank overdrafts. Yet the banks are charging 20% interest per year, which they're going to increase to 40% in July. At the same time, they're offering savers a pathetic interest rate of 0.1%. Yet these are the same banks that was saved by billions and billions of pounds of taxpayers' money. What on earth 
is going on. When are the banks going to act in the national interest? Acting First Minister. Stop in his prime. I think the First Secretary, if you can get the best out of that, will all benefit. First Secretary. I thank my honourable friend. I'm pretty sure I got the gist. And, and he's right to refer to the support banks need to be providing to customers. And thanks to the work of the Chancellor, the major banks and building societies have provided relief to those impacted by coronavirus, including deferring mortgage and other loan repayments, including increasing overdraft limits, including increasing credit card limits. Uh, by April, uh, by the first week of April, 1.2 million mortgage payment holidays had been granted. And in this national effort, as we pay tribute to those across the country who are stepping up to the plate, we certainly uh, expect the banks to do their bit. We're now going over to Lucy Powell. Lucy Powell. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Like Sam's Chop House, The Frog and Bucket, and hundreds more in Manchester, nearly three quarters of hospitality businesses don't qualify for grants. And for most, loans just aren't an option. Given that the hospitality and retail sector are the lifeblood of our high streets and are likely to face the longest government-enforced closure, will he extend cash grants and come up with a rescue package to stop thousands of pubs, restaurants, shops and venues from disappearing altogether? First Secretary. Well, can I thank the uh, Honourable Lady, and I certainly um, agree with her about the challenge we've got across all the sectors she mentioned in making sure that we see them through this incredibly difficult period. We want to make sure that the country, the economy, all those small businesses, all those sectors she mentioned can bounce back. The Chancellor has introduced a whole range of measures uh, in relation to both uh, finance, uh, grants where they're capable of uh, being made, uh, and also other uh, tax deferrals to enable small business and those in the sectors she described. I will, of course, certainly, if there are any particular businesses, take them away and look at them very carefully and make sure that the Chancellor uh, can assess whether there's any more we can do. But we've got to make sure, from the high street to those sectors which are adding uh, huge value to the economy, that we're in a position after the coronavirus uh, ebbs and once we come through the initial crisis to bounce back. And we'll do that by looking after all of those small businesses and all of those sectors that she rightly described. We're now going over to Sally-Ann Hart. Sally-Ann Hart. Yes, thank you, Mr Speaker. Beautiful Hastings and Rye is heavily dependent on tourism as a major driver in the local economy. COVID-19 has badly hit the tourism, leisure and hospitality industries. And has my right honourable friend considered what measures are needed to firstly encourage domestic tourism and secondly ensure that tourism and tourism related businesses are given the right support to enable recovery from the impact of COVID-19 and revive our local economies? First Secretary. Can I thank my honourable friend? Uh, she makes a really important point. Uh, we know that the coronavirus is significantly affecting the tourist industry. Uh, that was a point actually made by the, uh, the, the previous honourable lady as well. And the Chancellor has set out 
unprecedented support for businesses and workers, including those in the tourism sector. That includes business rate support for hospitality and leisure businesses. We've also announced a £1.3 million scheme through Visit England to provide support uh, to destination management organisations at risk of closure because of the coronavirus pandemic to see them through this difficult time. Um, and we are committed to helping the industry get through this crisis so that we can encourage uh, people to take holidays and to revive the tourism sector uh, as we come through the crisis. We now go over to Barry Gardner. Barry Gardner! The government's scientific advisory group on emergencies recommended an urgent lockdown to save lives on the 26th of February, but it took another three and a half weeks to implement it. The government likes to claim that it has been following the scientific advice, but it hasn't, has it? First Secretary. I uh, thank the Honourable Gentleman. We have at every stage. Uh, from January, when the uh, original uh, crisis started to break out in China, right the way through to the moment uh, several weeks ago where we announced our social distancing measures, followed meticulously, carefully and assiduously the advice both from the Chief Scientific Advisor and the Chief Medical Officer. And as a result of that, and as a result of the measures we've put in place, two things have happened. First of all, we've protected our precious NHS. It hasn't been overwhelmed in the way some had feared. And also, and I pay tribute not just to the key workers, which we've talked about, but the huge sacrifices made by the great British public because of their compliance with the social distancing measures, we are starting to come through this peak. And that has only happened because we have taken the right decisions based on the evidence that we've had at the right moment in time. And I have to say to the Honourable Gentleman, that's exactly what we'll continue to do. We are now going over to Nick Fletcher. Nick Fletcher! Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I ask what recent steps the government has taken to ensure that the NHS has adequate supplies of personal protective equipment? First Secretary. Can I thank the Honourable Gentleman? We've, um, this has been raised already in this House. It's critically important and I totally agree with him uh, on the imminent need for uh, getting the PPE to the places that need it uh, most. Since the start of the outbreak, we've delivered one billion items of personal protective equipment. We've made sure we've distributed it uh, via the devolved administration so that uh, all four nations get the equipment they need. We're also working through the local resilience forums with our local authorities and with the support of the military and making sure whether it's NHS key workers on the front line or care home workers uh, 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 that, that everyone who needs it is getting the uh, the PPE they need and with the help of my noble lord uh, my noble friend Lord Dayton uh, who ran the Olympics we are going to ramp up even further our capacity to uh, not just procure uh, and produce PPE but get it to where it's needed most. Nazsha. Thank you Mr Speaker. At a time of national crisis, it's critical the government keeps its word. Local councils are ensuring communities get the support they need. I know this from the work that has taken place in Bradford. They are the government on the front line. Will he confirm the government will meet its promise to fund whatever is necessary and fully compensate them for all the cost and loss of income related to the COVID-19 crisis and not just the funding already announced that only partially covers what the councils have already spent. First Secretary. 
She's absolutely right, and I pay tribute to the councils up and down the country who, whether it's through social care or the services that they need to provide to their residents, are doing uh, an incredible job. And I can reassure uh, the Honourable Lady that we've already announced an additional £1.6 billion of funding just this weekend to support councils delivering those essential services uh, on the front line. We're now going over to Matt Vickers. Matt Vickers. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I welcome the government's commitment to write off £13 billion of debt for hospital trusts across the country, freeing up our hospitals to work through the crisis and creating a firmer foundation for the NHS when we reach the other side. Can my right honourable friend confirm that the government remains committed to record levels of investment in the NHS so that the world's greatest health service can become even better and would you be willing to look at the case for capital investment in the ageing but amazing award-winning North East Hospital? First Secretary. Can I thank the Honourable Gentleman? He will know that under this government the NHS will have record funding enshrined in law, uh, the largest hospital building programme in a generation, 50,000 more nurses, 50 million extra GP appointments. In response to the coronavirus, the Chancellor has also launched a £14.5 billion coronavirus emergency response, of which £6.6 billion will go to the NHS. And, and in relation specifically to uh, North Tees, we would encourage the Trust to continue to develop their plans and their priorities for local new NHS infrastructure, and we'll be looking very carefully at all of those. We're now going over to Stephen Kinnock. Stephen Kinnock! Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Port Talbot Steelworks is the beating heart of the economy and the community in my Aberavon constituency. And there will be no post-pandemic recovery for our country unless we have a strong and healthy Welsh and British steel industry. The government's coronavirus large business interruption loan scheme is capped at 50 million pounds, which is only one tenth of what Tata Steel believes will be the cash flow impact on the company over a six month period. Will the government now urgently take steps to lift the loan cap to a level that will give our steel industry a fighting chance of surviving this crisis? First Secretary. Can I thank the Honourable Gentleman? He's right to um, uh, refer to the business interruption loans. We've made grants of uh, up to 25,000 available for small businesses. Um, he, I understand the point he makes about um, uh, the sector in his constituency. We have made changes to the loan scheme, principally to make it quicker to access. Uh, 12,000 loans have now been approved, and I know that the Chancellor is looking very carefully uh, at the sector in his uh, constituency, the steel sector, uh, and all of those uh, who are not directly benefiting uh, from this particular scheme to make sure that in the round we're providing the measures that we need in a targeted way to support all of the different crucial elements of the economy. James Sunderland. Yeah. Yeah. Mr Speaker, one of the most striking features of the past few weeks has been the way in which so many public, private and voluntary organisations have put themselves out of shape to deal with the pandemic, not least in my own constituency, for which a heartfelt thank you. Could I please ask the First Secretary to join with me in commending the remarkable resilience, initiative and spirit of the British people, and also perhaps to outline what he sees as the essential ingredients for getting our country through this? 
First Secretary. I think, my honourable friend, we're facing a challenge we have not faced uh, for decades in recent memory, and it is a national effort and a team effort. So I, uh, the critical ingredient is that the country comes together, as it has done, in this incredible national effort uh, and national mission to defeat coronavirus. And like him, I pay tribute not just to the NHS workers, uh, their carers and all those on the front line, but also uh, to those in the voluntary sector, also to those, the, the people that we're understanding more and more are really also part of the key workers in our economy and our society, the delivery drivers, the people working in the supermarkets, and all of those who uh, are steering us through this time of national crisis. Together we can rise to the challenge, and I'm absolutely confident we will rise to the challenge and come back as one United Kingdom stronger than ever. We're now going over to Ruth Cabri. Ruth Cabri. Thank you, Mr Speaker. For weeks, there's been a significant gap between promises from governments and the reality that's been experienced by our constituents. So when will the government learn from the delays they've experienced so far, learn from other countries, and also learn from the success of the speed that, in which the Nightingale hospitals were delivered? When will they learn from the best in crisis decision-making and start to deliver solutions that fit the promises? First Secretary. Well, can I say to the Honourable Lady, um, first of all, she's absolutely right. With an unprecedented crisis, of course, we'll learn lessons. Uh, there is no country in the world addressing this crisis uh, that, that doesn't. Um, but she's also right to refer to the Nightingale Hospitals, an incredible achievement in this country. People said that we couldn't build uh, a hospital in this country at that kind of speed, and we've built several uh, with more to come. People have said that we wouldn't be able to, uh, to get the, the one billion uh, items of personal protective equipment. That's exactly what we've done. So we don't say that there are no challenges, and, and she's absolutely right to make the point that we need uh, to learn the lessons as we go, but we're absolutely convinced uh, that going along uh, in a very deliberate way, learning the lessons, listening to the medical evidence, listening to the advice from the chief scientific advisor, not just abandoning it, uh, but following it consistently, consistently, that is how we will get through this crisis. And it's worth noting, Mr Speaker, that one of the big risks uh, as we go through this peak was the fear that we would find the NHS overwhelmed. It hasn't been overwhelmed. If you look at critical care capacity, if you look at the ventilators that we have managed to secure, the NHS is uh, heroic individual achievements, but as an institution has held up well. And that is a good example of how we have risen to this challenge and we will continue to do so. We're now going over to Nicola Richards. Nicola Richards. Thank you, Mr Speaker. There are around 100 of my West Bromwich East constituents currently stuck in India during this pandemic, which is why I very much welcome the government's bold commitment to work with our international partners and airlines to bring back our British nationals. Could my right honourable friend provide the House with an update on the progress of this scheme? First Secretary. Can I thank the uh, Honourable Lady, and of course you'll know as Foreign Secretary, uh, I've been working uh, flat out with the Foreign Office and our international network uh, on that. It's worth saying that working with uh, foreign governments and the airlines to return stranded, we've uh, returned over one million British nationals uh, on commercial flights. Uh, I think the scale of that operation, uh, uh, she can understand, uh, is incredible and unprecedented. We have also introduced uh, a special charter arrangement. We've put £75 million, pounds. we've got a whole range of international uh, UK airlines signed up to it, and we've returned over 10,000 on charter flights. In the last few weeks, 
The FCO chartered 52 flights to get more than 10,000, in fact, back from 16 different countries, including nearly 5,000 from India, uh, which I know she's mentioned. We've confirmed further flights from several countries going forward in the next few days, including India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Sir Edward Davey. Sir Edward. In an answer to the leader of the opposition, the Foreign Secretary mentioned a consultant who died at Kingston Hospital, my local hospital. That consultant's name was Anton Sebastian Pillai. Anton came to the UK after qualifying as a doctor in Sri Lanka in 1967. Anton worked in our NHS for decades and he was treating coronavirus patients when he caught the disease and sadly died. He was the best of us. So on behalf of Anton and the other brave NHS and care workers who made the ultimate sacrifice for others, and so we learn the lessons urgently ahead of a future pandemic, will the government commit itself now in for a future independent judge-led inquiry into how this crisis has been handled? First Secretary. Can I th thank the right honourable gentleman and uh, I join with him in the tribute that he made um, uh, to Dr Anton Sebastian Pillai. I know firsthand, I've been into Kingston Hospital, my boys were born there, I've been treated there, the incredible work they do uh, and it's my local hospital too and so I join with him in paying tribute to what they've uh, done. I have to say I won't uh, take up his offer of committing to a, a public inquiry. I think that there are definitely lessons to be learned and when we get through this crisis it will import, be important that we take stock and we come together to understand uh, with an unprecedented uh, challenge on an international scale what can be done to avoid it happening again. But I think right now, from our key NHS frontline workers to the members of the public, they would rightly expect our full focus to be, as we come through the peak of this virus, to make sure that we save lives, protect the NHS and steer the whole country through this crisis, rather than engaging in that process or that set of deliberations right now. We now go over to Faye Jones. Faye Jones. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The First Secretary of State will be aware that the Army has played a vital role in the UK's response to the coronavirus, but he may not know that in Wales, the Joint Military Command was stood up in Brecon Barracks in my constituency. From there, they have been supporting local resilience forums around the country, including our seven regional health boards. I'm extremely proud that Brecon is the home of the Army in Wales, and as the Ministry of Defence ponders the future for Brecon Barracks, Will the First Secretary join me in thanking the Army for setting up the Joint Command so quickly and for working so hard? First Secretary. Can I thank uh, my honourable friend? I absolutely join with her in paying tribute, as I did in relation to one of the questions uh, from uh, uh, in relation to Scotland, of paying tribute to the heroic effort that our armed forces are making in all four corners of the United Kingdom, in particular in relation to, to Wales. Our servicemen and women have worked tirelessly to help build the hospitals, drive the ambulances and del deliver the PPE to where it needs it most. And along with the other key workers, we pay tribute and we pay tribute to the fact that it is uh, the UK armed forces uh, in all four corners of the United Kingdom who are helping to deliver and get this country through the coronavirus challenge. We go across to Liv Savile-Roberts. Liv Savile-Roberts. Uh, if the lockdown is lifted in one nation or region because it's past the peak, we will see confusion and we will see people starting to move around and that runs a risk of further infection. 
will the first Secretary of State confirm that if the Four Nations approach is to be meaningful, the four governments must have an equal say, and that lifting the lockdown can only happen by the unanimous agreements of the four governments together? First Secretary. Can I thank the Honourable Lady? Um, can I first of all pay tribute to the uh, administration in both uh, Northern Ireland, uh, in Northern Ireland, Scotland uh, and Wales through the COBRA meetings? We have, I think it's fair to say, had excellent cooperations uh, between all four nations and indeed uh, with the current Mayor of London. That is critically important. If she looks uh, at the social distancing measures, there has been a remarkable consistency in all four nations in terms of compliance. So I hope that we can continue to work together on a collaborative basis uh, as we look towards the second phase and certainly on behalf of the UK government we are committed to doing that. We're now going across to Dr Luke Evans. Dr Luke Evans. White Cross Zoo in my constituency is world renowned for the conservation work and indeed protecting endangered species. But White Cross Zoo is now endangered itself with overheads of £650,000 a month with no income coming in. They've joined together with people like Bristol Zoo and Chester Zoo uh, and London Zoo asking for £100 million from the government to help care for the animals. Will the government commit to support good zoos? So just like the animals they protect, the zoos will be here for us all to learn from in the future. First Secretary. Can I thank my honourable friend and absolutely agree with uh, his, uh, his question. We've got to look after um, uh, the zoos and all of the incredible animals uh, that they put on display for all of us. And I'm very pleased to be able to announce that as a result of our engagement and our consultation, um, there is, uh, we can announce a new zoos support fund, which will be launched and open soon. It will be uh, able to provide dedicated support alongside that already made available by the Treasury to help zoos care for their animals during this crisis. Uh, and I urge the zoos concerned to look at the range of financial support uh, already available, but also to make contact with DEFRA officials so we can see how it can be best tailored uh, for them. We now come to the final question. Angela Riedel. Angela Riedel. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Last Sunday, the UK and 18 countries of the G20 endorsed a comprehensive communique on COVID-19 and future global pandemic preparedness. This much-needed action plan was then effectively vetoed by the USA as a part of its unfounded attack on the World Health Organization. Given that the Prime Minister is reported to have spoken to Donald Trump yesterday, can the right honourable gentleman assure this House that this that Britain believes that the World Health Organization is critical to the future of global health security and that this country will not be drawn into the US President's disgraceful vendetta against the World Health Organization? First Secretary. Can I uh, reassure the Honourable Lady, first of all, um, that we fully support the international efforts and indeed we are a leading player, whether it's on vaccines or supporting vulnerable countries, in helping get through what is a global crisis. Um, in relation to uh, the WHO, we recognise uh, that it has a role to play. It is not perfect. No international institution is. We do need to work to reform it. But we've made clear we consider it uh, an important part of the international response and the UK will continue to lead the way in that effort.